Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is Episode 8, The Rise of Brian Baru and the Dal Kosh. In today's show, we're going to see a ruthless and brutal civil war break out between the Northern and Southern O'Neill Kingdoms, shattering the once powerful O'Neill Dynasty. This war will last decades and by its end, almost no part or person of 10th century Ireland will emerge unscathed. When it draws to a close, the winner will not be found among the O'Neills. No, in this episode, Ireland is changing, and new faces will come to the fore. Now, since it's been a while since I've put out a show on the 10th century, episode 7 was about St. Patrick, I'm going to begin today by retracing a bit of what we covered in episode 6, just to set the scene for today's show. So we're going to open up as the O'Neills move inexorably towards a civil war in the brutally cold winter of 945. So our show today opened in the shockingly bitter winter of 944 to 945. The weather of that winter was frighteningly cold. The annals of the four masters recorded an abnormally severe frost so that the lakes and rivers were passable on foot. Even though the climate in the 10th century was slightly warmer than it is today, normal winters in the medieval world were still tough. The long, dark days were compounded by the fact that most roads turned into an impassable sea of mud. In 945, however, the freezing conditions must have literally ground everything to a halt. With no thermal gear or winter boots, the dangers of hypothermia must have been very real, so people would have kept indoors, no doubt. Our story begins in the most northerly corner of Ireland, in modern-day Donegal, where the weather must have been especially bad. Donegal is one of the coldest parts of Ireland. 
In their one-roomed, wicker-walled houses, people must have desperately huddled around fires for heat. Unusually, though, for the people, in this isolated corner of Ireland, the Canal Connell, the future was bright. The Canal Connell had not just been geographically isolated in the far northwest, but for much of the medieval period, they were also politically marginalised. The Canal Connell were part of the Northern O'Neill Kingdom. They had once been a powerful dynasty at the time of Ireland's conversion to Christianity, when they had produced the famous monks Columkill and Adamon. But since the 8th century, the Canal Connell, like all other families within the Northern O'Neill Kingdom, had been dominated by the Canal Owen, a powerful family based near modern-day Derry. However, in the winter of 944 to 945, they no doubt passed the time recounting the story of their recent resurgence to power. Two years previously, in 943, the king of the Canal Owen, the famous Murtoch MacNeil, known as the Hector of the Western World, had been killed fighting the Vikings. The Canal Connell king of the day, Rory O'Connor had taken full advantage and taken over the kingship of the Northern O'Neills from the Canal Owen, Murtoch's family, as they struggled to deal with the void left by his death. While the Canal Connell looked into a future with hope, there were no doubt many who saw the harsh winter of 945 as symptomatic of the bleak prospects that the future held for many people across Ireland. Rory, coming to power, no doubt, made a few people nervous, as they wondered, could this newcomer really command the fear and respect and provide the leadership and relative stability the previous king of the Northern O'Neill had? But the year after Rory came to power, an abnormal fear and anxiety must have swept through the entire O'Neill Federation. That's the entity composed of the Northern and Southern O'Neills. That year, the High King, Dunnock Dunn, who was also King of the Southern O'Neills, had died. Tradition would have expected someone from his family, the Clan Coleman, to succeed him as King of the Southern O'Neills, like it happened for the previous 200 years. But in 944, things were different. Drawing on the example set by Rory, no doubt, a man called Cungaluk MacMuel Mahig, the king of a long marginalised family, swept Donica's family aside and installed himself on the throne of the Southern O'Neills. This must have terrified people. It's not that Cungaluk was a particularly evil man, he was no worse than any other king, but his coming clearly meant war, a long, brutal and terrible war. The crux of the problem, you see, lay in the fact that the position of High King lay vacant after Dunnock had done, had died, and there was only two candidates eligible for the role. That was the King of the Northern and Southern O'Neill Kingdoms, in this case Rory and Cungaluk. In 944, they began shaping up to each other like two boxers at a weigh-in, both knowing they would have to go to war for a prize they both coveted. Indeed, it's probable that it was only the bitter winter of 944 to 945 that staved off the conflict. No doubt, while they whittled away the hours in their desperate attempts to stay warm that winter, both Cungaluk and Rory dreamed of the high kingship they both desired. 
They both must have known too though, they'd have to fight first. One would become king and the other would die. In this scenario, there was no possibility of a peaceful resolution. If you put yourself in Kongaluk, or Rory's shoes for that matter, it's really obvious why. Both men came from families who had long been excluded from power. Through violence and upheaval, they had forced their way centre stage. If either one allowed the other to become king, they knew full well it could be another two centuries before their families ever saw power again. For ordinary people, this situation was a disaster in the making. Two of the most powerful individuals were about to go to war. And they were two powers that were relatively evenly matched. This war could drag on for years. And indeed it would. In fact, no one, not even the worst pessimist in 945, could have had any idea just how long this war would last. While the kings dreamed of power, parents no doubt must have worryingly looked at their children, wondering what horrors the inevitable war would bring. And the worst thing about it was, there was nowhere that people could run. While people in the O'Neill kingdoms stressed about the prospect of war, parents in Munster could have told them what this war would be like. The province of Munster in the south of Ireland had been descending into chaos since the early 10th century. In 914, the Vikings had begun attacking the province. And then in the 930s, the province had been destabilised further when a small kingdom called the Dalkash began challenging the traditional power in the province, the Ogonacht, for the kingship of Munster. Indeed, the winter of 945, with its bitter cold, was probably some respite for many people in Munster. At least there could be no war. As the winter snows melted in the spring of 945, the inevitable war between the northern and southern O'Neills began. At first, it was a relatively low-key affair, when Congolok and Rory clashed in South Ulster, along the border of the southern and northern O'Neill kingdoms. This affair seems to have been a limited engagement, but Rory did come off the worse. Now, while Rory escaped this conflict... It wasn't just the defeat that would have worried him. There was something worse, something far more worrying. In the heat of battle, Rory would have heard cries in a language he did not understand. It was clear that Kongluk had enlisted the help of Viking mercenaries from Dublin. Now when Rory tried to find out more about Kongluk's new allies, he would quickly have realised he was up against a major force. These Viking mercenaries from Dublin were led by a man called Anlov Coran, the son of Citric Caic, the man who had killed the legendary O'Neill High King, Niall Grundov. Anlov had been the king of Viking York, and as we shall see, not a man to be trifled with. Anlov represented a new generation of Scandinavians in Britain and Ireland, who were no longer solely describable as Scandinavian, in the way the original generations of Vikings had been. Anlov himself was a Christian and, to a certain extent, a Viking king who had gone native. His name Coron, which means sandal in Gaelic, probably indicates he was crowned in accordance with the Gaelic custom of placing a sandal on the foot of the king. Gaelic name or not, Anlov Coron ensured that Congaluk would have the troops to make this war long and bloody. But before we get drawn to the details of the conflict, 
I just want to take a quick look at why it all come to a head in the 940s. And first, see how people might have tried to deal with the developing chaos in medieval Ireland. If you've listened to the other podcasts, you'll realise by this stage medieval Ireland was no picnic. Life was hard and violent. But there's no doubt in the 10th century, particularly from the 940s on, life got more difficult and even more violent. I find it incredibly difficult to envisage what this almost constant warfare for a generation would have done to impact on, say, family life. One thing that might give us some indication as to how people dealt with such difficult circumstances is to examine how people dealt with another major traumatic experience from the medieval world, and that is infant mortality. Infant mortality was incredibly high in the medieval period, and many medieval historians argue that in an effort to deal with the astronomical tragedy that was child mortality, Parents had a cold, distant relationship with young children until they had survived infancy. As Ireland became more violent in the 10th century and warfare became constant, as we will see, you have to wonder, did people develop similar, distant personal relationships to protect themselves from the constant death and tragedy around them? It's very difficult to know, but it must have impacted personal lives. The increased violence was not happening by chance. Ireland was changing in the 10th century. Once peripheral kingdoms were now able to come to the fore. And I just want to take a quick look at why all this came to a head in the 940s. Some of the reasons why it was happening would have been evident to people living at the time, while others would have been more difficult to spot. Perhaps one group in society who were best placed to see the problems brewing in Ireland in the 10th century were traders. For example, a Gaelic trader visiting England in 944 would have seen a kingdom ruled by one king, that's Edmund I. And this was in stark contrast to Ireland. Ireland was composed of numerous kingdoms, constantly at war. There was no central authority. In fact, Ireland was a chaotic situation. The O'Neills were the ones who had come closest to dominating Ireland. But they had failed to develop a strong centralised authority. Indeed, a cycle of violence and feuding had continued right through their period of dominance. This constant feuding and a lack of a central authority in a violent world created a powder keg ready to explode. These problems were compounded by a factor that was plain for everyone to see. And this was the major destabilising force that the Vikings were in 10th century Ireland. Since 914, they had completely destabilised the province of Munster. But even in the north, where they had failed to ever get the upper hand over the O'Neills, they still allowed lesser families to hire them as mercenaries and destabilise the old relationships of power. We can see this as Cungalloch hired the Dublin Vikings as mercenaries in the Civil War. Finally, Economically, the Gaelic economy was changing, and this, no doubt, created tensions. For example, the trader we mentioned earlier would have realised that as the 10th century was developing, 
the Viking settlements at Waterford, Wexford, Limerick, Dublin and Cork amongst others were major trading centres growing incredibly wealthy. However, in the northern half of Ireland, our trader would also have realised that there were no such centres, largely down to the military successes of the O'Neills. As the 10th century developed, these trading centres became more and more important. The Vikings would provide huge wealth through taxes and were a constant source of mercenaries. Because the O'Neills had little access to such Viking settlements, this immediately put them at a disadvantage. The new economic power concentrated in Munster and Leinster allowed what had been minor kingdoms to rise and challenge the major families of the O'Neill kingdoms. These factors all collided in the mid-10th century, creating a perfect storm that now proceeded to rip the O'Neill Federation into fragments. While all these factors were playing out, many people, perhaps living in existence in their local community, rarely travelling very far, could not see these processes at work. They did, however, feel the side effects. This was war and conflict. And in the north, after the opening salvos of 945, the tensions between the northern and southern O'Neill exploded in 947. In 947, the northern O'Neills under Rory O'Connor of the Canal Connell swept south and encountered Congaluk and his Viking allies at Slane. Today, Slane is the site of an annual rock concert. In 947, it was a small medieval village positioned on the immensely important Boyne River. Presumably the battle was fought as the southern O'Neills under Congaluk tried to stop Rory crossing the River Boyne at Slane. In what must have intensely worried Congaluk, even with his Viking allies, led by Anlov Koran, Rory still routed them. For Rory, although he did fail to land that killer blow at Slane, he must have felt his day was coming. In the first serious encounter, he had no doubt come off the better, even though Kungaluk's army was supplemented with Viking cohorts. Now, if Kungaluk was stressed by his defeat in 947, his blood pressure must have hit the roof in 948. When word came from Dublin that his Viking ally, Anlov Koran, was returning to York to attempt to reclaim the kingship there, the situation only deteriorated further for Congaluk when Anlov left and was replaced by a Viking king, Blaker, who was an old enemy of Congaluk. It's not clear, but it's even possible that Blaker forged an alliance with Rory. One way or another, Congaluk could not allow this situation to develop. He couldn't risk that old military disaster of a war on two fronts, with Rory in the north and Blaker in the south. Kungaluk acted decisively. He marched on Dublin in 948 and killed Blaker. Life in Viking Dublin, for those who lived through this, must have been approaching schizophrenic, with a constant changing of sides. They were never sure who they were fighting for or against. This constant changing was set to continue because, after Blaker's death, the brother of Anlov Curran, Godfrey, took power and he resumed the alliance with Kungaluk. You have to wonder how Viking warriors felt serving under Kungaluk, the man who had just killed the previous king. 
As the year 948 gave way to 949, Rory prepared himself for an all-out offensive on Congoluk. If Rory wanted to invade the southern O'Neill kingdom, he had to eliminate any remaining opposition to his rule within the northern O'Neills. To this end, in the summer of 949, he attacked Flabbertuk O'Neill, the son of Murkatuk and a potential rival. By the year's end, Flabbertuk was dead and Rory had a free hand to turn on Congoluk in 950. In 950, Rory launched an unprecedentedly large attack on the southern O'Neill. He swept south, focusing his attack in two areas. Firstly, Brega, which was Congoluk's homeland, and secondly, Mead, which was the home of the other major powerful family within the southern O'Neill, the Clan Coleman. This escalated the conflict to a boiling point. Something would have to give. Congoluk seems to have been unable to match the invading force militarily as Rory occupied the southern O'Neill kingdom for six months. And according to the annals of the Four Masters, he reduced Congoluk to great straits. Indeed, it was during this period that Rory seems to have been accepted as the victor by many. The same entry in the annals of the Four Masters records that the dues of the King of Ireland were sent to him from every quarter. It seems that kings started to realise the game was up for Congoluk and the process began of getting in with the man who was going to be High King. There was only one issue, however. No one told Congoluk and, more importantly, his Scandinavian ally, now led by Godfrey, brother of Anlov. In late 950, Godfrey led an army north to rescue Congoluk and a fierce battle was met on the 30th of November. In an example of how unreliable medieval sources can be, the annals of the Four Masters record an absurdly high figure of 7,000 deaths in this battle. The annals of Ulster record 2,000 deaths, when the real figure was probably lower still. Anyway, Rory, who was buoyed by confidence, led his army in and decimated the Viking army, killing Godfrey's deputy, Ivar. As he seems to have carried the day, Suddenly disaster struck and Rory was cut down by a Viking sword. Even though his army stood victorious over the carnage of a battlefield amidst the blood and stench of the Viking dead, this was a defeat for the Canal Connell, Rory's family. Now for us living today in a society of total war, where wars last not days or months but often years, the idea that a single encounter could change a battle is hard to comprehend. But in the medieval world, the death of one individual could be immensely important. The Canal Connell's power was invested in Rory personally, and when he died, they had no king to claim the kingship, and so they began to fade back into history. Indeed, they seemed to have imploded. They couldn't even hold on to the kingship of the Northern O'Neills. Later that year, after Rory's death, the Canale owned the traditional rulers of the northern O'Neills, took back power in the form of the young king, Donal O'Neill. With Rory's death, Congoluk was the ultimate winner in the short term. He was literally the last man standing. For a man who had faced almost certain defeat up to a few days previously, he must have been relieved more than anything, because a defeat to Rory would have meant death. But the decline of Rory and the Canale Connell 
did not end the general anxiety and tension that the war had caused. This internal war within the O'Neill kingdoms was far from over. Indeed, in many ways, the most serious contender had yet to enter the ring. Waiting for the chance was the new rulers of the north, the Caneleon and their king Donal, one of the most able military leaders in the 10th century. No one could or would rest until Donal had made his challenge for high kingship. But in 950, he wasn't ready, and this gave Kungaluk a certain amount of breathing space, time he would use to try and quell external enemies of the O'Neills. While the North would take a brief rest from war, Kungaluk took the war south. For the O'Neills, the province of Munster had always been a threat. They had generally thrown up a challenger to O'Neill dominance each generation. And in 951, Kongaluk, having defeated Rory, could see a potential rival emerging. Only a few miles down the Shannon River from O'Neill territory, a new power was rising in North Munster. This was the Dalakosh. The Dalakosh had been former allies of the O'Neills. But through the 930s and 940s, they had increased their power continually. Kongluk realised that he needed to clip their wings and acted decisively in 951, attacking the Dalkosh and killing two sons of the king, Kenethig. But, foolishly some might say, he left two other sons alive. These were Mathgaman and a ten-year-old boy who would go on to become Brian Baru. In the short term, Kongluk was not able to press home his advantage and he could not see the Dalkosh would become the threat that they did. He had continuing problems at home. While he had defeated his main rival within the O'Neills, there was always someone waiting to take a shot at him. His kingship was akin to holding back a breaking dam, and to do this, he seems to have been quite dependent on his Viking allies. He quite frequently used them to keep down his internal rivals. In 951, his Viking ally Godfrey, son of Citric, launched a raid into the lands of the clan Coleman, attacking monasteries. This was probably at Kongluk's behest, given his arch-rival within the southern O'Neill kingdom was the same clan Coleman. For Kongluk, the Vikings were increasingly important, but also for the Vikings, the alliance with Kongluk represented a change in fortunes. But as we will see, this alliance would end in the most unusual of fashions. The renewed war had been very profitable for the Vikings. Indeed, the annals of Ulster tell us that after the raid on the Clan Coleman, 3,000 men or more were taken captive and a great spoil of cattle and horses and gold and silver was taken away. These were carried back to their settlement at Dublin, which was being rebuilt. Although it had been completely annihilated in 944, the Vikings had started a major reworking of the site. Archaeologists have dated some of the earliest earthen defences from this development and no doubt the wealth they gained from raids aided this process. The settlement being built in the later 940s and 50s would last. Indeed Dublin would never again be raised like it had in its early days. The Vikings planned out their town carefully in plots with merchants and traders setting up shop. You can just imagine the scene when the Viking army returned from the raid on the Clan Coleman lands in Meath. 
the 3,000 captives that they had taken would be sold into slavery unless they could be ransomed back. The scene at the Dublin slave market must have been chaotic as slave traders separated out the rich for ransom, while the rest were probably taken to Dawkey Island. Dawkey Island is a small island off the coast of Dublin, and from archaeological and historical evidence, it seems it was here the Vikings held their slaves, the island forming a natural prison. In time, these slaves would be sold on across the Viking trading routes, being revitalised for the first time since the decline of the Western Roman Empire. Unfortunately for the Vikings, they didn't realise that by rejuvenating old trading routes, they were also rejuvenating the spread of disease. And in 951, leprosy and an epidemic of dysentery, disturbingly called the Bloody Flux in the annals of the Four Masters, swept through Dublin. This disease would impact Gaelic Ireland in a myriad of ways. The close proximity and relatively unhealthy living conditions in Dublin allowed dysentery to spread quickly. From house to house, the population must have feared what was coming next, the disease acting like an executioner. They had little understanding of disease, and indeed struggled to stop it. They had no idea at all about how it was spread. Theories of medieval medicine tended to focus on the idea that diseases were spread through the airs, and had no idea about bacteria or viruses. The outbreak of this disease in 951 would have a major impact on the history of Dublin and the O'Neills. Not only did it decimate the settlement, but it carried away Congolux's ally, the Viking king, Godfrey. Now, after Godfrey's death, the history of Dublin became incredibly murky for about a decade, and it's not clear at all who succeeded Godfrey as king. But whoever it was... This unknown Scandinavian did not favour an alliance with Kungaluk. And this, as we shall see, had a large impact. As the 950s wore on, Kungaluk sorely missed his ally Godfrey. In 955, he must have wished Godfrey was by his side when he faced the biggest test since he had defeated Rory. Perhaps even a greater test than Rory had been. This time, Donal O'Neill, king of the Canaleone, and the Northern O'Neill was about to challenge for the title of kingship. It was becoming clear that the O'Neills were entering a state of collapse and constant war. As each new challenger stepped forward, the little cohesion they had once had disintegrated further. Instead of moving to a centralised kingdom, they were starting to move in the opposite direction as the various internal factions became militarily more powerful and at the same time independent. Next we shall see the rise of the last great O'Neill High King from the north, Donalu O'Neill. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. In 955, Donal O'Neill laid down a challenge Congolok for the High Kingship. Don O'Neill was the king of the Northern O'Neills and the son of the legendary Murtagh Mac Neill, who I discussed at length in episode 6. You may notice that Donald's surname is not O, but Ua, spelt U-A, which refers to the fact that he was the grandson of Niall Glondov, Ua meaning grandson of. Indeed, it's from this period the actual O'Neill surname originates, and it's from Niall Glundov, the High King killed in 919, and not, as many people think, from the 5th century founder of the O'Neill dynasty, Niall of the Nine Hostages. Anyway, before we get sidetracked into surnames, I'm going to veer back to history. Donal, no doubt coming from a great lineage like he did, his father, grandfather and great-grandfather, had all been legendary kings. He must have looked at Kongluk as if he was a usurper of sorts. And in 955, he laid down a claim to the high kingship. As we shall see, Donal was not a man to mince his words, and his laying claim for the high kingship did not mean he politely asked for it. Donal was a man of action, and his laying claim involved a lot of violence. It was in the summer of 955 he made his intentions clear. In the west of Ireland lies the province of Connacht, which was strategically immensely important to the O'Neills. It occupied territory that essentially formed the western flank of the O'Neill kingdoms. All successful O'Neill high kings needed to force submission from it, and in 955, Congolok set about doing it. As Congolok struck west to take submission in the form of hostages from the king of Connacht, Fergal O'Rourke, it should have been a pretty straightforward mission. But it turned into a disaster. Donal launched a simultaneous raid devastating Connacht. This was not, however, in support of Congoluk, but an effort to undermine him and his authority. Donal sought to force submission and take hostages from Connacht for himself. In a campaign of naval military daring, rare enough in Gaelic warfare, Donal attacked through waterways, and by the end of the campaigning season, it was he and not Congoluk who had taken hostages. Effectively, the two kings were fighting a bizarre proxy war where they both attacked the same enemy, seeing who could do the most damage. In the end, it was Donal who won, and this seriously damaged Kongluk's authority and standing. The winter of 955 was worrying, no doubt, for Kongluk. He now clearly had a serious rival in the form of Donal, and while he could claim to be High King, it was worthless while his rival Donal held the hostages and submission from one of the main provinces in Ireland. The following year of 956, Congoluk did not attack Donal, but instead he sought to expand his power south and turned this time to the Kingdom of Leinster, a province far out of the reach of Donal in the north. There was no chance that he could swoop in and steal the glory here. So, in the summer of 956, Congoluk crossed the River Liffey 
and presided over a gathering of royal families of Leinster called the Fair of Carmen, an event that took place on the 1st of August. This was a traditional gathering of the nobles of Leinster, where, along with feasting and games, Cungaluk would have accepted a submission to his authority from the main families in Leinster. After the fair was over, Cungaluk left to cross back over the Liffey and return to the southern O'Neill kingdom. In a spot lost to history, his cortege was attacked and Cungaluk was cut down. As he died, he would have seen it was the exact same Leinster men from whom he had just taken submission that had killed him in an alliance with the Vikings at Dublin. For Cungaluk, it was just a case that his luck had finally run out. His failure to take hostages in Connacht the year before completely undermined his authority. No doubt, when he appeared in Nanster, they were looking at a man who was probably what we would call a lame duck politician. His days were numbered. One way or another, his rule would have ended soon. Donal O'Neill would probably have killed him had the Leinster men and the Vikings not done so. Ultimately, Congaluk's end was actually symptomatic of the waning power of the O'Neills. Congaluk was the first O'Neill High King to die in circumstances like this. The only other recent High King to have been killed was Niall Glundov, but he had died a soldier's death in battle. Congaluk, on the other hand, had suffered a pretty noble death in an ambush. O'Neill influence, respect and authority was waning and the Leinster men simply had taken their chance to break free of their control. When word spread of the death of Congaluk, it was obvious who his successor would be. It was clear that Donalu O'Neill, the man who had taken submission from Connacht the year before from under the nose of Congaluk, would be the new High King. This, however, did not ease tensions within the O'Neill either. The previous 20 years of war had established the precedent that anyone could challenge the High King. In the late 10th century, Donal would have to fight literally anyone who wanted to challenge him. And in Donal's case, an orderly, or maybe not so orderly queue, was forming up. It was clear the world of the O'Neills was in decline. Donal would be the last northern high king in the style of his forefathers, ruling over a kingdom whose foundations were turning to sand. The first thing Donal did as high king was to secure internal cohesion within the northern O'Neills. This he did by taking hostages from the Kingdom of Ullad in East Ulster. His traditional enemy, the Canal Connell, had been completely decimated in the civil war with Congaluk, and they didn't really ever pose a major challenge. In 963, though, he'd faced his first major test. A problem that had been brewing for decades. Outside of the O'Neill kingdoms, serious rivals were growing in power, and seeing the old power declining, they were preparing to make their move. Through the 10th century, the province of Munster had seen two potential rivals of the O'Neills come to the fore. One was a marginal branch of the O'Gonleth, the Kingdom of Desmond, and in the person of Mood, they had taken over the kingship of Munster. But they faced a very serious challenge, fiercely fought by the Dalkosh of Thomond. It was the Dalkosh who posed the greatest threat to the O'Neills, as they ruled lands in close proximity to the southern O'Neill kingdom. Cungaluk had recognised the dangers of the unfettered rise of the Dalkosh, and he had attacked and defeated them in 951. Although the conflict had been costly, it seems that the Dalkosh did emerge more or less intact. While the king of the Dalkosh, Kenethig, 
died in 951. He was replaced by his more than able son, Mathgamon. While the O'Neills fought each other for the following decade after 951, Mathgamon used the time to build up a power base in North Munster. And by 963, Mathgamon, with the help of his brother Brian, had carved out a major territory in North Munster, known as Thomond, coming from the words Tuamua in Gaelic, which literally means North Munster. Positioned around the Lower Shannon region, Thomond was strategically perfect. From here, the Dalkosh could strike out at all their main rivals. The Ogonacht, based at Cashel in South Tipperary. The Vikings, based at Limerick. And as we have seen, the O'Neills. For Donlu O'Neill, things began to get serious when the Dalkosh started expanding their control over the lower reaches of the Shannon River. This was a major security threat for the O'Neills. Since the arrival of the Vikings, the dangers posed by the Shannon River had been all too obvious. This 200 kilometer long river was a major route in medieval Ireland, allowing the fastest journey from the north to the south. Indeed, it would be the fastest route in Ireland from the north to the south, probably till about the 18th or 19th century. The arrival of the Vikings in the early 9th century had shown that this routeway was a major danger. The southern O'Neill's western frontier was marked by the Shannon and their vulnerability to naval attack was all too obvious. To tackle the Vikings, Gaelic kingdoms had increasingly developed a naval aspect to war and Donald himself realised the value of naval warfare very early on in his career. Indeed, when he had attacked Connacht in 955, it was through a naval operation that he had been successful. Donald would need all his naval experience because in 959 the Dalkosh exploited the O'Neill's weakness along the Shannon when they attacked the monastery at Clonmacnoise in 959. But this was only the beginning and as we shall see a vicious conflict opened up in the 960s along the Shannon River. In 963 the Dalkosh pushed up the Shannon again but this time Donald was more than ready. Showing his innovative skills, he had carried a fleet overland from the north to Loch Ennell, which gave him access to the Shannon River by way of the River Brosna. So later in the year, as the Dalkosh pushed up the Shannon, they were met with this highly mobile O'Neill fleet, and Donald decisively defeated them in a naval battle. It seems to have been a disaster of sorts for the Dalkosh. According to the annals of Inish Fallon, they abandoned their vessels and were drowned. For the people back in Thomond, they no doubt received a macabre report of this battle, as they saw the bodies of their kinsmen floating down the river a day later. In spite of this victory though, Donal knew that this general encroachment was a worrying trend and had to be stopped. The O'Neills could not allow anyone else to take control of the Shannon, otherwise they would be completely vulnerable. Two years later, Donald eventually gained control over the region in a bleak campaign in 965. For the people of the time, the struggle of 965 must have been one of the darkest points in a tough century, as it happened to the backdrop of a horrendous famine. It's recorded that in 965, parents even sold children for food. Whether true or not, it's clear the analyst is trying to just show how bad this famine was. 
It was in the midst of this famine that Donal eventually got the upper hand over the Dalkash when he reaffirmed his control over the western Shannon region by taking hostages from the King of Connacht. For starving people watching what seems to be an ever-expanding, endless conflict, you could hardly blame them if they wondered was the end of the world approaching. Even though Donal emerged victorious, the ever-increasing daring of the Dalkash has to have alarmed him. But for Donal, they were just one of a wave of once minor kingdoms now making their presence felt. By 968, the Kingdom of Leinster were coming to the fore and became yet another problem for the O'Neills. Donal, in one of the most audacious raids of the 10th century, brutally brought them to heel. Instead of a land-based invasion, Donal sailed the fleet around the coast, then went up the Barrow River which cut through Leinster. When he was in the middle of Leinster, he unleashed an army that swept eastwards, sacking the territory of the kingdom until they reached the east coast of Ireland. It was an ingenious move by attacking in the place least expected. While Donal could annihilate Leinster, he must have known he was starting to fight what was a losing battle of sorts. Because, no matter who he defeated, more and more enemies seemed to have popped up. Two years later, Donal found himself yet again at war, but this time he faced a very formidable alliance. In 970, Anlal Curran had joined up forces, this time with Kungluk's son, who was also called Donal, and they inflicted a vicious defeat on the O'Neills at Kilmona in modern-day County Westmeath. For Donal, this must have seemed like a date with destiny. The turning point in both his father and grandfather's reigns had come in a defeat to the Vikings, where they had both died. Although Donal survived this battle, all hell broke loose. The dominance of the High King was gone, as the various factions within the O'Neills were now more evenly matched. In the aftermath, Donal tried to quell opposition. He attacked modern-day Monaster Boyce and Dunlear, in which 350 people were apparently burned alive. This brutality indicated a desperate man losing control. The major fallout of Donal's defeat at Kilmona happened the following year, though. In 971, sensing that he was weak, the Clan Coleman rebelled against Donal's rule. This was a really serious challenge. The Clan Coleman were the traditional rulers of the Southern O'Neill, having produced high kings of the calibre of Mwelshocknell I and Flan Sinna. For Donald, this situation could develop into a major revolt, but he acted with what was becoming the characteristic brutality to put the revolt down. In 971, he led a northern army south into Meath, home of the Clan Coleman, and he devastated the land, attacking monasteries and fortresses, any centre of population. The campaign was not just vengeance, but a severe lesson to all who contemplated rising against him. The Southern O'Neill paid the price in a move that, if anything, can only have increased the hostilities between the various branches of the O'Neill kingdom. In his wake, Donald left a trail of destruction and mayhem, but he did reinforce his position as High King. The cruel barbarity of Donald's campaign in 971 seems to have had its effect and the constant struggle that had began in 944 seems to have come to an end. It wasn't a resolution, however. 
but more just a generation who could fight no more. A few decades later, these fault lines that had caused these wars would fissure again. For the time being though, Donal had established a level of internal peace within the O'Neills, in that no one ever challenged him again. But it should be noted, the High Kingship, as the institution that had existed in the past, was effectively dead. And as the O'Neills had fatally wounded themselves, the Dalkash and Munster were preparing to take full advantage. While Donal fought his ferocious campaigns in the north, far in the south, the Dalkosh were tirelessly working away, developing their own power base. They had pulled themselves together after their defeat to Donal in 963, and by 967 they were on the rise again. That year, at Solahed, in County Tipperary, where the Irish War of Independence would break out in 1919, the Dalkosh resoundedly defeated the Vikings who had been a major thorn in their side for decades. While defeating the Vikings was no small achievement, their major opponent was without doubt Muelmuth, the last Ogonacht king of Munster. Like the O'Neills in the north, the Ogonacht power in Munster, which Muelmuth represented, was coming to an end. It's possible, although not certain, that they even lost control of the kingship of Munster to Machamon as early as 970. However, the rise of Machamon and the Dalkosh was stunted when in 976 Machamon was captured by an ally of Maelmuth. He found himself in captivity and there was no way whatsoever that Maelmuth would allow his mortal enemy walk away. Machamon didn't have a chance and he was executed shortly afterwards. As the Dalkosh mourned the loss of Machamon, the title of king fell to his younger brother Brian. Although not evident at the time, this man would go on to be the most successful Dalkosh king in history, achieving far and more than anyone could imagine. This man is, of course, Brian Baru. When Brian came to power, he faced a very serious situation, and his future was far from certain. The Dalkosh in 976 were again engaged in a brutal conflict with the Vikings of Limerick, while Muelmuth, he had just exemplified his hostility by executing Machamon. Brian also had to worry that should the O'Neills ever get back on their feet, they would no doubt sweep down the Shannon River and decimate the Dalkosh. While he did have problems, Brian did have something to build from. The Dalkosh were by no means the minor force Brian's father, Kinetic, had started out with 40 years earlier. But... We should note that in 976 they were not yet even the most dominant force in Munster. It was entirely possible that Brian Baru would end up on Muelmuth's chopping block, just like his brother, Machamon. The conflict between Muelmuth and Brian came to a head in 978 in the Battle of Balaklochta, where the two collided in a ferocious conflict. If the change sweeping Ireland in the 10th century was evident anywhere, he was on this battlefield in 976. The two armies facing each other down were almost opposites. Thirty years previously, the Dalkosh were effectively nobodies, while 300 years previously, the Ogonacht were only in the middle of their long reign over Munster. But times were changing, and Wellmood 
was killed at Balaclochta, and with this, the great power of early medieval Ireland, the O'Gonacht, exited the stage of history. For the victor, Brian Baru, he probably couldn't have cared less. He was more likely thinking about the crown of Munster he had just taken, and perhaps gave a thought for his brother, whom Wellmuth had killed. Brian Baru began what was an extraordinary journey, but one no doubt aided by the change that had gone on in the north. While Brian was came in the kingship of Munster in 978, the ageing king of the O'Neills, Donlu O'Neill, seems to have been paying little attention to the world around him. A new threat was emerging, but it seems Donal was not really in a position or didn't have the inclination to act. This new challenge had begun the previous year when another ageing king, Anlov Curran, began to challenge for power in Ireland, stepping out of the shadow of his old role as a mercenary and ally. In 977, he had killed the son of Donal and the grandson of his old ally, Congaluk. In this, he had effectively killed the two most likely candidates to succeed Donal, and he may well have been making a play for power. In 980, he got the perfect chance. Donal gave up his throne finally and retired to the monastery of Armagh, ending what was a life of war. Indeed, after his life of pretty extreme violence, he was probably starting to worry about what was coming next. Donal was succeeded as High King by Mwail Shocknell II, the King of the Southern O'Neills. But within his first few months as High King, Mwail Shocknell II faced a major challenge from Anlov Curran. He garnered an army of Scandinavians from as far afield as the Western Isles of Scotland and the Isle of Man. The Scandinavians marched north out of Dublin in 980 and chose the symbolic battlefield of Tara to take on Welshocknell. The choosing of Tara was pretty significant because it was here that the O'Neill High Kings were crowned and it indicates that Anlov was in some way challenging for kingship. As the Vikings marched the 60 or so miles, I have to wonder how optimistic they could really have been. Over the previous century, they had lost nearly every single major encounter they had fought, only winning the odd one here and there. Many of the most experienced warriors must have known that they were unlikely to defeat even a weakened O'Neill army. They couldn't buck the trend, and where Shocknell II crushed Anlov, utterly devastating his Viking force re-establishing the O'Neill's dominance in the short term at least. It was clear that while the Vikings could and would gain power as merchants and sometimes mercenaries, they were not going to carve out independent political power. In the aftermath of the Battle of Tara, Muel Shocknell then pressed home his advantage and marched on Dublin. When he arrived, he forced Anlov Curran to abdicate as king. Anlov had little choice but to leave and his leaving symbolised the end of Viking autonomy at Dublin. Through the course of Anlov's reign, the Vikings had no doubt become more and more a part of Gaelic society. When Anlov left Dublin, the changing role of the Vikings was perhaps best illustrated by the fact Anlov didn't go to another Viking settlement, but he followed in the steps of Donal and retired to a monastery, Iona of all places. When the ships carrying Anlov Curran pulled into the monastery, surely must have raised an eyebrow. It was only this man's grandfather who had absolutely destroyed Iona. 
and love, like Donald, lived a life which had seen Ireland change irreversibly. Both had come to power in the 940s when the O'Neills had still dominated Gaelic Ireland. By the time they died, Donald in 980 and Andlov in 981, both the power of the O'Neills and the Vikings were clearly in decline. Although Mwail Shockner II will go on to be one of the most powerful O'Neill kings in history, the days where the O'Neills unquestionably were the most powerful kingdom were over forever. A new power was emerging in Munster, under the stewardship of Brian Baru. Tune in next time when Brian and Mwail Shocknell will clash and we'll see the truth behind medieval Ireland's most famous conflict, the Battle of Clontarf in 1014. Until next time, Sloan. And if you've any feedback or questions, please send them to history at irishhistorypodcast.ie. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 